1: I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montell and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at laist.com slash events.
2: Producer Natalie Chudnovsky and I are back in Santa Barbara, where Oscar Gomez died almost 30 years ago. This time, we're at the police department not the sheriff's office that we visited earlier. We want to know if the police have any records on Oscar that we might have missed. That's how we meet the records manager at the police department. She says there aren't any records on Oscar, and she's not familiar with the name, but she was a UC Santa Barbara College student at the same time.
3: And you were in school 91
1: through 91? Uh, I was in IV 91 through 96?
2: She tells us her name is Margarita Moreno.
1: Margarita, like the dream.
2: Yeah. Or the flower. That's, nobody ever says that. My cousin's name is Margarita. Daisy, yeah. <laughs> and Margarita's college dorm? It was right next to where Oscar's body was found.
1: And so I remember when my mom dropped me off, I was the only freshman with the oceanfront view.
2: Ooh. And my mom's like, where, where are you going to school? <laughs> Think of the neighborhood around UC Santa Barbara as a tip of land that points south into the Pacific Ocean. Along the right edge of the tip is the school's campus. Along the left edge is Isla Vista, the community also known as IV. A lot of college students live there, and it gives UC Santa Barbara its party school reputation. If you zoom in, you'd see that along both of these edges are bluffs that drop down to the beach. According to the Sheriff Coroner's report, Oscar was last seen alive on Del Playa Drive, the street alongside the bluffs in Isla Vista, the left edge of the tip. His body was found nearly 15 hours later and about a miles walk away on the right side, near the campus. That's the shore next to the dorm where Margarita lived her freshman year.
1: He was found by the Anacapa dorms. Oh, so that's. People don't really
2: go off that cliff. So, wait a second. You're saying there's one cliff in particular where
1: most of the deaths have happened? DP. DP? Del Playa Road. Del Playa. Now, that's in
2: Isla Vista. The apartment where Oscar was last seen alive was also on Del Playa. Margarita says bluff related deaths along that road in Isla Vista are infamous.
1: I mean, there's so many different stories out there running from police, running from other people. And they die. So there used to not be fences back then um, in what was called like dog shit park. And so people would be running, even just messing around, and they'd run, literally run off the cliff. So could he have ran off that cliff or walked off that cliff? Certainly.
3: There wasn't even lighting like you really can't see. No,
1: you can't see. Like, I would heard even when I was in school how the police would be, you know, trying to capture somebody who's running away. Like, they'd stop chasing them for them to stop running so they don't run off this cliff.
2: The other thing we're wondering is, you know, with so many deaths, it's like, what's been done to improve the place yeah. and, and make sure that people don't fall and um, die? Well, you'd have to check this. My
1: understanding is they've uh, put up fences at this yeah. point, maybe yeah. some lighting. but Yeah,
3: yeah
2: the way Margarita is describing these bluffs, it sounds like falls and deaths are common. When I search Santa Barbara bluff deaths online, there are dozens of news stories, mostly about college students who've fallen off the cliffs of Isla Vista. Some survived, some died. And it makes me wonder, just how deadly are these bluffs? And what can they tell us? about what happened to Oscar. I'm Adolfo Guzman Lopez, and this is Imperfect Paradise, The Forgotten Revolutionary.
0: to Stanley Drive, then turn left onto Las Positas Road.
2: After a day of reporting, Natalie and I go to see Isla Vista for ourselves. It's dark by the time we arrive on Del Playa, the street I've only known through Oscar's death report. There's student housing everywhere, and one of these apartments is the one where José González lived with Noel Huerta, where Oscar stayed the last night of his life. This is where Oscar Gomez uh, was in one of these apartments uh, the day before he was found dead. So it's really dense housing, a lot of two-story, either apartment buildings or um, some one-story homes. There's some frat houses, maybe sorority houses around here too. We walked through a small park right up to a chain-link fence about four or five feet high. Not too hard to climb over. Beyond that, a few feet of land and a straight drop down to the beach, 30 to 80 feet, depending on where you are. Even though I'm behind the fence, I'm feeling a bit of vertigo. Maybe it's because I know that students have fallen here. We look around to figure out how to get down safely to the shore. Is this the only, is this a walkway down? We don't, we're near here. Uh,
0: to the beach? Yeah. No, I can show you where I take Done, pretty oh. much done here, and I'm walking that way. It's okay. just right over here. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is just a little park, but um, yeah, I'll
2: show you. Um, well, very, very nice uh, young woman just pointed us to this walkway, and we're standing now on a um, on a wooden staircase um, that's leading down to the beach. The beach is probably about uh, 20, 30 feet down. You can hear the waves. Looks like the surf is only about two or three feet high.
3: It's really dark. You can't really see where the ocean meets the sky. You can just see the white foaming of the waves.
2: These cliffs are slowly eroding. So the houses are, are just on the edge of these cliffs. And it looks like what, what? This is like a 50-foot drop from the balconies down to here. But I just I just have in my hand the uh, some of the... Uh, The cliff material, and it's this kind of like, look, it's breaking in my hand. Yeah. I want to go touch the water. As I walk to the waves, I'm thinking of the water and sand the coroner found in Oscar's airways. I'm thinking of the grisly TV news footage of Oscar's body in the surf, nearly covered in seaweed. And three men, probably from the sheriff's standing a few feet away, looking at Oscar. The sea breeze, the sand, the ocean water, carry a message, an echo of Oscar that I haven't heard in interviews, haven't read in documents, and have not heard in the cassette recordings of his show. It's
4: more, by realizing who you are and where we came from, It's gonna be easier for you to have a better feeling of who you are than yourself, and you'll be able to move forward, and you will never be slipping into darkness.
2: I can imagine Oscar standing here, breathing in the same salty air. Hearing these same waves, and I'm seeing how steep these bluffs are, and the dangers they could have posed for Oscar, and for the community of young college students nearby. Just how often do people fall off these cliffs? And has anything been done to protect them? That's after the break.
0: VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
2: Let's see what you got.
5: I got some, some documents for you. Let's see.
2: Well, oh, look at that. That's a stack. Yep. Okay. This is our associate producer, James Chow. I was not able to find a comprehensive list of bluff-related falls and deaths in Santa Barbara anywhere online. So he's been looking through old newspaper articles and requesting information from public agencies, including the sheriff's office.
5: And these documents are all the the files I was able to compile from the people who've fallen from the bluffs in Ala Vista from uh, 1990 to 2019.
2: So the big question for me is whether Oscar's death and his fatal injuries are part of a pattern among all these other bluff deaths. So between 1990 and 2019, how many people died from falling off the bluffs there in Santa Barbara?
5: I was able to count 12.
2: So there are two kinds of cliff-related falls in Santa Barbara. The first kind are more straightforward, where people fall off the edge of the bluff. The second kind are balcony deaths, incidents where students fell from balconies that extend over the edge of the cliffs, or the balconies themselves have collapsed. So these 12 deaths include both Bluff and Balcony Falls. I wanna give a warning here, that for the rest of the episode, we will be discussing fatal injuries in a graphic way.
5: So there was 10 labeled as accidents, accidental deaths, and two listed as undetermined. Just two. Mm -hmm. And that includes Oscar. Um, and um, surprisingly enough, uh, in 1994, when Oscar died, he was actually not the only person oh, who had fallen in 1994 and, and passed away.
2: Oh, tell me about that.
5: Yeah. So there's this other person named Brian Scott Miller. Um, here it is. If I want to take a look at it. And they actually had died an accidental death. From what I remember, I think they were under the influence of some kind of alcohol. And they had um, leaned over a fence to vomit and accidentally fell over. And this is just three months before Oscar died.
2: Wow! Oh, here we go. Um, classification: accident cause, uh, closed head injury, impact trauma. I'm not a doctor, but this injury looks very similar to Oscar's. Okay, closed head injury. Oh, okay, this and this page right here, the toxicology laboratory page, looks just like the one for. Oscar. Okay, so for Oscar, the um, blood alcohol level was 0.18. And do you remember for him what the uh, blood blood alcohol level was for Brian Miller? Oh, here we go. 0.17.
5: Look,
2: 0.17, that's right.
5: I, and I will say that out of the 12 people that um, I was able to find um, – who fell over the cliffs and died, Uh, nine out of 12 of them had alcohol or drugs in their system. Eleven of them were also students.
2: So um, Oscar Gomez dies from massive head injury. Um, How many other people die from massive head injuries falling off the bluffs?
5: Yeah, so I was able to find seven people.
2: Out of 12 people who died from falling off the bluffs over nearly three decades... Seven of them had causes of death very similar to Oscar's, trauma to the head. James starts showing me the autopsies and coroner's reports.
5: Timothy Baptista had similar injuries, cranial cerebral injury due to blunt force trauma. And And
2: his death was an accident?
5: Yeah, his death was an accident, but from here... Uh, I remember reading that Oscar had some whiplash injury to the neck. This person actually had cervical spine injury, and that was the other only injury listed. So for Andrew Litvinchuk, his cause of death was cerebral contusions and basal skull fractures and blunt force trauma to the head. Wow.
2: Did he have any other major bones broken or anything like that?
5: The bones broken that are mentioned here are all in the, are all in the skull.
2: Oh, there are none on his arms or legs or anything like that.
5: Actually, no. Yeah, there's a lot of it is um, abrasions or some kind of bruisings and lacerations.
2: That's what happened with Oscar.
5: Exactly. That is what happened with Oscar. Yeah, we were also able to uh, get some data from the sheriff's department uh, in Santa Barbara. And uh, this is more recent data. uh, And it actually includes both injuries and deaths. So from 2010 to 2021, 43 people fell off these bluffs.
2: That's 43 people who fell off the bluffs in Isla Vista in a span of about a decade. And that doesn't include balcony deaths. Wow. It's looking like Oscar's death is part of a pattern, that it's not an outlier. James, it just strikes me that year after year in this time period that you've looked at from 1990 to just a few years ago, On a regular basis, students, young people fall off of these cliffs and die. So with so many deaths, year after year, what's been done by the university to try to stop this?
5: It's been kind of like a push and pull with a lot of the community and with um, the county and other institutions. There's like all these people who are proud of Beauty of the parks, and they don't want any kind of like obstructions with fencing that kind of defeats that view that people would love of, to see of like the the ocean and whatnot.
2: And then there are the people who are concerned about this pattern of bluff-related deaths, like the UCSB student advocacy group Fence I La Vista, created in 2013.
5: There's actually been quite a few fencing initiatives over the years. I believe in 2001, Santa Barbara County actually passed an ordinance mandating that Oceanside houses have fencing at least three feet high on both the balconies and ground-level patios.
2: Remember that geography I talked about earlier? That tip of land jutting out into the ocean? There is fencing and lighting on much of the university side now, the side adjacent to campus buildings and housing. On the Isla Vista side, there's fencing too, though it's not everywhere although I should say even fencing, can't totally prevent accidents. We've been told by former students that sometimes people climb over the fences for the view or to take a pee. The main responsibility for fencing Isla Vista lies with Santa Barbara County government. So what is the county's legal obligation to make the area safe, considering this history of bluff-related accidents? We tracked down the legal advisor to the county at the time. How's retired life, Steve?
4: <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, you know, you can kind of wear what you want and do what you want most of the time.
2: Stephen Underwood is a lawyer who represented Santa Barbara County in 1994. And for 25 years, one of his main clients was the sheriff's office. He represented the county when Oscar's father, Mr. Gomez, sued them. Underwood says Mr. Gomez was not the only parent to sue the county because of their child's injuries along the bluffs. There's one case he remembers where the plaintiff claimed there should have been a safety measure or a warning sign to deter students from the cliffs. And how that case played out surprises me.
4: And so that case went up to the Court of Appeal, and uh, uh, she lost. She lost. Uh, Because when we have unimproved public property, government property, uh, you're immune from liability if you don't, could, you know, you don't have to fix anything, you don't have to f- fill a pothole you know, or a gopher hole or anything else. you just leave it in its natural state. and if it's left in its natural state, you're not responsible for that.
2: This immunity Underwood is talking about is part of state law, and it basically says that public entities are not responsible for injury caused by unimproved public property that's in its natural state. That includes lakes, rivers, and beaches. The reasoning for this immunity is that to really make unimproved public property safe would be so expensive to a government that they would likely restrict the use of this land. That would cut off the public from hiking trails, lakes, rivers, and other outdoor recreational activities. So in exchange for free access to, say, a waterfall, the liability for any injury is on you. What makes property improved versus unimproved is complicated, but basically, Underwood told us that his recommendation to the county was to avoid putting up fencing, lighting, or other safety measures around the bluffs in order to keep the county's immunity from lawsuits.
4: I mean, it's not, you know, it's sort of counterintuitive. You know, you think, well, if something's happening, let's do something to prevent it. Um, but in this particular case, because we had an immunity, it was just sort of the opposite. So it was... That sort of that struggle, let's do something for the community because the community is interested in putting up fences um, versus, well, it could impose potential liability far out exceeding the, the, you know, the costs of the fence
2: or anything else. There is a lot of fencing now, but I also know how much of it wasn't there in the 90s.
3: I was just curious, going back to the legal strategy of not making improvements Mm -hmm. to the bluffs, like, I understand the strategy, um, and you want to keep your immunity so that you don't get more lawsuits. Um, I'm just wondering how you feel about that in retrospect, not as an attorney, but sort of as a, a person.
4: It's hard. Not to, that
3: an attorney is not a separate. person, of course. Yeah, it's hard to
4: <laughs> separate it. It's hard to separate it. Um... You know, an attorney is going to use all the tools that they have. And if the law allows them to use those tools and they can make an argument that is a valid argument, um, they they should make it. Um, But on the other hand, you know, I've got now grandkids that are in their early 20s. And I would want them to be protected.
2: So even though this was the legal recommendation at the time, ultimately it's the Santa Barbara County government that sets policy. So we reach out to the office of the Santa Barbara supervisor who represents Isla Vista. Their response? No comment for our investigation. Seeing Oscar's injuries in the context of all these accidental bluff-related falls... I'm beginning to understand why sheriff's detectives would conclude that Oscar's fall was also an accident. But was that because his injuries truly pointed to an accidental fall? Or is it because accident was an easy answer? After the break, an independent forensic pathologist gives us the clarity we've been looking for.
0: VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org
2: LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events.
6: My name is Lindsay Thomas, and I am a forensic pathologist.
2: Uh, Have you done autopsies? I have. How many?
6: Oh, gosh, probably over 5,000 at this point.
2: Dr. Lindsay Thomas was based in Minnesota for most of her career, where for over a decade, she was a chief medical examiner. We sent her Oscar's 1994 death documents. So before we get into uh, some of the conclusions you have about this autopsy report, can you retell some of the main findings in this report?
6: This is a very thorough autopsy report. So in the absence of photographs, I still have a pretty good idea of what's going on here. So when a forensic pathologist makes the diagnosis of craniocerebral trauma, what they basically mean is that someone died as a result of head injuries. So what we're talking about here is sort of near the top on the side, and it's focally depressed, meaning, again that that part of the skull has been pushed
2: in. I want to know about the other injuries on Oscar's body, injuries his family and friends believe are suspicious. First, the abrasions. Dr. Thomas says that those are commonly seen when someone is found in the water because of the way their body might be thrown about by the waves. Um, there's also a description of a, I think it's an injury to, to a bone in the interior of the skull... Uh I've I've been told that there are a lot of forces needed to, you know, break that that bone. Can you can you talk about that injury?
6: Honestly, to get that kind of radiating uh fracture, I think it's I mean, it's certainly possible that a really strong person with a baseball bat or a tire iron could do it. But to me, it's more consistent with a really significant fall. And it's the type of injury that you see in motor vehicle crashes, just to give you an idea of kind of the degree of force. So it's not the sort of thing you'd get from, you know, some being punched or even being hit over the head with a beer bottle or something like that. But is certainly consistent with a fall from a height or a jump from a height if someone lands on their head.
2: I also asked Dr. Thomas about how Oscar being drunk might have affected what happened to him that night. Tell me about that. Tell me about the 0.18. What does that do to a person's um, functioning skills?
6: Well, he's a young guy. So even if he's been drinking heavily for a few years, it's not like he's a 60-year-old who has a lifetime of experience with, you know, handling alcohol. To have a 0.18 means you're really impaired, And of course, balance and judgment are two of the things that are most frequently impaired early
2: on. In this report, we don't have a measurement of how much marijuana he had smoked, but there's a detection of it in his bloodstream. Marijuana
6: is found so commonly that we tend to just overlook it. But the fact is, in combination with alcohol, there can be kind of a symbiotic, if you will, relationship in terms of perhaps affecting someone's judgment or just thought process, reasoning skills.
2: So if he did fall onto, you know, kind of rocks at the bottom of the bluffs, um, what kind of, like, you know, blood would this produce from this kind of injury? And you know, kind of evident evidence, quote-unquote, right, um, wh- would we be able to tell where he fell? I mean,
6: this close to water, I think it's really going to be hard to predict what you would expect to see in terms of blood at the impact site.
2: Meaning it's possible that any evidence was washed away.
6: The other thing, and we haven't really talked about this, is the um, internal neck injury where there's hemorrhage into the musculature of the anterior ligaments with a
2: whiplash. Have you seen yourself or read about this type of whiplash injury caused at the hands of another?
6: Um, No, I would say that would be a very unexpected finding. I mean, I'm not saying it could never happen, but uh, it's much more common from some type of the car stopping suddenly and someone's head being thrown back, or what I would envision here would be a fall or jump and landing on the
2: head and then sort of hyperextending the neck. I hadn't thought of the whiplash injury as important here, especially not in comparison with Oscar's head trauma. But what Dr. Thomas is saying here feels like a big deal. It's a very compelling argument that Oscar was not hit in the head with an object, that his injuries and his death were most likely the result of a fall. We're talking to a lot of friends and family, a lot of people who, who, who knew Oscar, and people who, you know, we're talking to his father, who um, obviously, um, you know, there's been a lot of pain in the family uh, because of the death. Um, You know, one of the things that he and others have told us about this report is that, well, why, if he fell off a, 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 a bluff, a cliff on the shore, why weren't there any other bones broken? Shoulders, arms, legs. Why just the cranium? How would you answer that?
6: Well, it totally depends where somebody lands. If someone basically does a head dive and just lands on their head, especially in a case like this where the head absorbed significant injuries, I wouldn't necessarily expect that there would be
2: any other injuries. What's your conclusion about how he died?
6: I think he either fell or jumped off of some place that landed him close enough to the water that when the tide came in or went out or whatever, it then sort of rolled him around enough that then it washed
2: him up where he was found. We've been told uh, the family believes he was killed by somebody.
6: I mean, this, this is a, uh, you know, a healthy young man. So if, in fact, he were involved in a homicidal attack, Why doesn't he have broken bones in his hands that he put up to protect from a blow? Or why doesn't he have facial injuries? I mean, usually people start with a punch to the nose. I mean, it's heartbreaking to me that families so often go down this route of just believing that life is not so unfair that a random accident could cause this kind of pain to them that somebody must have done something. And it's it's tragic. I mean, I can't imagine if my son died in this set of circumstances. Who knows what kind of belief I would develop just to make it so that I could live with it.
2: All I can think about is what I'm going to say to Mr. Gomez and whether he'd even believe that Oscar's death was an accident. I explained to Dr. Thomas my own connection to Oscar, how we ran in the same Chicano student activist circles in the 1990s.
6: Oh, that makes it so hard for you. Because he isn't just an anonymous.
2: He's not. Yeah. What, What are the best things you can say to a family from your, you know, perspective to help them heal?
6: Oh, gosh, I don't take it as my job to convince them, you know, because I I get that sometimes it just thinking that someone you loved made this choice or put themselves in a situation where this happened, it's just too painful.
2: How difficult is that, Dr. Thomas, for you know, this undetermined label to be placed on a death and, you know, the possibilities in this case.
6: Well, I don't think people ever really get closure, whatever that is, from the death of a child. I I don't see how you ever fully recover. We know why he died in that he had a head injury, but we don't know how he got that head injury and i have to think for the family it just leaves a lot of space for people to tell them stories and for them to be pulled in one direction and another and to not be able to really settle on okay well this is this is what we have to live with i mean it's got to be in a way not unlike people whose bodies are never found you you can never finish the story.
2: After Dr. Thomas signs off, Natalie and I stay on Zoom. Oh, boy.
3: How does this moment feel, hearing, for opinion? Like, if it feels pivotal, towards what?
2: It does feel pivotal. I think I've turned a corner... In terms of the everything people have been saying to us about Oscar being murdered, um, you know, I haven't discounted it. I haven't discounted it a hundred percent, but you know, the medical information really discounts, you know, some of these long-held beliefs by the family and friends that the coroner's report suggests or points to a homicide. She made a very compelling case for the accidental death. By the way, we double-checked with another forensic pathologist, one who knows the Santa Barbara shoreline. He echoed everything that Dr. Thomas told us.
3: I found it interesting that she said she doesn't think it's her job to convince families. I don't know that it's our job either.
2: There you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah absolutely but even if we contribute this this is more than what's been out there already even if we contribute a reliable expert which i believe dr thomas is i think that's a that's a significant contribution to to the question of how did oscar die if we De-emphasize the murdered part by introducing this information. You know what that possibly does? That possibly highlights his activism. That possibly gets people to say, oh yeah, well, after this podcast, it was not really um clear that he was murdered. We don't we don't think that anymore. But we still think he reached people. He um he emboldened them at a time when They were feeling under siege by the elected officials. He gave them something to be proud of at a time when the elected officials were telling them that they were less than human. How are you feeling? Oh man, this is well. You know, you know, I got, I started to get choked up, but trying to get the word, you know, pr- pride, proud, out, and that, that, uh, that's, that's, you know, that's what he was about, being brown and proud. This is what Oscar's friends and family want to highlight too. But the question of his death always steers the conversation off course. Which is why I'm still trying to reach a more definitive answer. So so this is the first time I'm hearing from someone who actually saw Oscar that night in the apartment. You saw them fighting? I know he ended up punching Oscar once. A good, nice hit. That's in the next episode and final episode. Imperfect Paradise: The Forgotten Revolutionary is written, reported, and hosted by me, Adolfo Guzman Lopez. Natalie Chudnovsky is the lead producer, and our associate producers are James Chow and Francisco Aviles Editing by Audrey Quinn. The show is a production of Elias Studios. Antonia Cerejido and Leo G are the executive producers for Elias Studios. Fact-checking by Audrey Regan. Mixing by our engineer, E. Scott Kelly. And special engineering thanks to Sean Campbell. Our music supervisor is Doris Anahí Munoz. The music is written, performed, and recorded by Joseph Quiñones at Secondhand Sounds in Rialto, California. Our website, Elias.com, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The marketing team of Elias Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, Emily Guerin, and Leo G. Imperfect Paradise, the Forgotten Revolutionary is a production of Elias Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.
1: This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. The L.A.S. Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism.